Amen. May we indeed look to Jesus Christ. Some of you remember that was our theme last year, 2022, seems like so forever ago. <laughs> Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That song was a wonderful gift to us from Pastor Josh, and my, how it ministers to our hearts. As is usually the case on a Sunday morning, we text back and forth and touch base on a few things, and he shared this morning, and I had already been dealing with it uh, for a while, just standing in amazement at the providence and sovereignty of God, knowing since before time as we know it began, that we would gather here this morning in this place at this time, and we would be considering together a passage such as is going to be before us in a few moments in Romans chapter 9, that so clearly exalts, proclaims God's sovereignty. I shared with him this morning the reality is for me, as a pastor, as I read through it again this morning, as I looked at the notes, as I considered the truth here, it, it was honestly a, a bit overwhelming this morning. Just was. In the sense that it just, it just hits. So thankful that God's in control. So thankful that he is sovereign. It's a shame that that word, that that phrase makes us a little nervous sometimes. I think, quite frankly, that's because of our own sinfulness and, and we have this tendency to take things, wonderful truths of God's word and, you know, kind of put the lever, our lever to them. Look, I have no problem proclaiming God is sovereign. Amen? Why should that make us worry? Why should that make us nervous? There are so, so many facets of our lives where that comes into play. For which we should be so grateful. I stand in, in wonder and amazement as well because, again, you know, I think most of you know this, on Tuesdays usually our time, our staff meeting time, and we kind of talk about what's coming up, you know, for this Sunday in particular, and then Pastor Josh is putting together the service. And, and these songs and this focus has been before us now for, for quite a while, uh, not just, oh my goodness, what happened, and let's adjust for this morning. <laughs> All these songs were picked out days ago. God knew we would need them. God knew that maybe this morning they'd hit just a little different, maybe with a little, little added bit of freshness to them. As I came in uh, this morning, our friends downstairs, and we are so grateful that we can partner with them and, uh, and allow them use of our space downstairs for their worship. And they were singing this morning, Ancient of Days. I wonder how many churches across America this morning are singing Ancient of Days. There may be some who did adjust for that. Perfectly fine. 
but it's a blessing that we can do that, that we can, yes, run to God's word, yes, come in prayer, but, but we also have the wonderful gift of music that, that ministers to our hearts and, and, and bolsters us. I don't for a second think that come Thursday morning, you're going to be thinking a lot about the points of my sermon as much as probably the music you sang this morning. I get that. That's just how God has made us, and, and that's a wonderful ministry that we have, and I praise him for it. But I hope you will run back to Romans 9 and refresh your memory. I will mention, as we look at this passage, we are going to look at Romans 9, pretty much the, the rest of it this morning. We'll reach back a little bit next week, but we'll get into Romans 10. Part of our service next week, I'm looking forward to, we will be observing together the Lord's Supper. And uh, certainly, as you look into Romans 10, and I would encourage you to read it, uh, it's a very obvious uh, connection there as well. So looking very much for, uh, forward to that. But our theme before us in these days as we study the book of Romans is to not be ashamed. To be bold in our witness of the gospel. That has multiple manifestations and implications. There are things about God that, that our finite mind cannot fully comprehend. Right? We, we know that. But that doesn't mean that we cannot then also boldly share what his word teaches. The passage before us today has some of the classic theological tension that has existed for centuries. When confronted with such, we have to remember some basic rules of interpretation. I've, I've said before, we've had this conversation before, that you, know, you announce, as I did months ago, that, well, next week we're going to be preaching through the book of Romans. We're going to study through the book of Romans. And some people are like, whoa. Then I'll have pastor friends that are like, so what are you preaching through? Well, I'm preaching through Romans. Had somebody the other week, so what are you preaching through? I'm preaching through Romans. Where are you? Just finished eight, going into nine. Oh. <laughs> I had somebody tell me um, a couple months ago that they were in a church that said, we're going to preach through Romans. They got to the end of chapter eight and quit. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know if they ever picked it back up. I, I just, he, he said in, in his time there, as far as he knew, they hadn't picked it back up. I, okay. <laughs> Look, Romans 9, 10, 11 should not scare us. It's part of God's word. I've said this before. Paul, the Holy Spirit, inspired Paul to write this to a, a, a rather young church, a church that's a lot younger than this one. He didn't write it to confound them or confuse them or tear apart their faith. He, he wrote it to build them up and to instruct them and to encourage them and to edify them. And so we, we look at it and, and I think we just, again, we have to, you know, what are some of the basic rules? Well, what's the main audience in this context? Who's he talking to? What else does the Bible say on this subject? Rarely is it the case. That a single passage is the sole mention of a truth in Scripture. So, you know, we don't just grab a phrase as if it's the only information on the subject. 
what does the whole of Scripture teach us about the character of God? And how does that impact our interpretation? And then, we must always be ready to accept by faith the things that we can't fully comprehend. And obey completely the directives given to us from God's word. I don't have to fully understand it in order to believe it. That's faith. <laughs> we walk by faith, not by sight. And that looks great on a pillow. We have it stenciled on the wall in our living room, quite frankly. It's a wonderful reminder, and it's a powerful truth. But it can also be a very convicting question. Do we? I mean, again, I, you all know, I mean, I, I am not the, you know, fill in the blank, sharpest knife in the drawer, brightest bulb in the candelabra, whatever. I get that. But I got in the car this morning, I pushed the little button, it started, I drove here, I cannot explain to you how that engine works. Dan can. I cannot. <laughs> I know it's called an internal combustion engine. I know that literally there are hundreds, thousands of explosions that are happening inside that thing in order to make it go. And we don't even think about it. We get in, we push the button, we go, we turn the key, whatever. And we go. You're driving around something that is exploding. We don't have to fully understand it, comprehend it in order to believe it and to trust it and to appreciate it. That's where the ministry of the Holy Spirit comes in and he makes up that gap. And so this morning... Let's open God's word. Let's look together as we continue this study together from, from this inspired letter to the church at Rome. We looked last week at the first five verses and, and Paul is pouring out in, in vivid terms his incredible burden for his kinsmen, the children of Israel. We know from Philippians, he goes through his pedigree. You know, circumcised the eighth day, tribe of Benjamin, Pharisee, Pharisee, all the stuff. You didn't get any more Hebrew than Paul. But then he reminds them of all of the ways, sevenfold, manifold blessings of God upon them as a people. And again, not to just hoard them up and look at everybody else and go, we got it and you don't. It was not to, to instill pride in them. But to make, to, to cause humility, to come and go, why us? And to come and to realize that God kept every promise, will keep every promise. And to pull them, to draw them to belief in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Why do he do it that way? Because God is sovereign. That's why. And so as we look in Romans 9, and I'm going to take the time this morning to read through this rest of this chapter. Then we're going to go back and we'll, we'll just walk right on through it, okay? But I think it is good for us because this is definitely one of those. You're going to hear some phrases that 
you know, people do the claw thing, and they reach in, they go, got it, and pull it out, and then they talk all about it. You know, Jacob I loved, and Esau I hated. Oh, let's talk about that. Look at it in its context. Okay. Romans 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in, or, in order that God's promise of election might, might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told. The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God, who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call for my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. The Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring. We would have been like Sodom, become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? 
that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now my friends, this is an amazing passage. Yes, there are aspects of it that are somewhat confounding. There are also incredible doxological statements in there. And Paul here is writing to this church at Rome that, that yes, it compri is comprised both of Jews and Gentiles. And he has talked about just all of man's sin. For all of sin come short of the glory of God. Everybody, all. Our great need of a Savior. He has called them to repentance, to confession. Now the Holy Spirit, he, he's given them security. I mean, chapter 8, who can separate us from the love of God? God's love for you is not dependent upon your race and your heritage. But now the Holy Spirit tells him, all right, look, we're going to focus in here. Because there's this tension that exists. My people, the children of Israel, they need to get hold on this. So he puts a very fine point, as it were, on the quill. And he writes. And as we say, as you look over this whole thing, it is all about the fact that God is sovereign. He's in control. I'm glad that as a preacher of God's word, I don't have to have a full and complete understanding of every truth in order to be able to preach it as truth. Again, I, I don't get all of it, all right? And anybody that says, oh yeah, I got, I got it. No. No. We're told in the word, right? Who can plumb the depths of it? We look at a pastor and we're like, wow. How many times have I read that? How many times have I preached that? Wow. Okay. But that then doesn't mean, well, then until I do, I can't preach it. We have really short services. Sorry. But I trust in the holy and just character of God, and it, that spans that gap between the ability to understand and the truth that is in the Scripture. And, and so we have revealed in the truth of all the blessings that God had, had bestowed upon the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, uh, we've been reminded of these. And so now we begin to look and, and, renew, and review that awesome doctrine of the sovereignty of God. And, and, should, and we should state it up front as well that as we look at this, again, he's, he's really honing in on Israel here for a few minutes. So we, we are careful as we apply this and as we interpret it. There are aspects of it, he's like, 
again, he talks to the Old Testament prophets, and he says, you know, there's going to be a people that are not my people that are called my people. Hello, that's us. <laughs> okay, but the church is not Israel, and Israel's not the church. When Daniel makes his prophecies of the whole 70 weeks thing, we're living in a gap. 70th week is yet to come. The church age is, again, God in his sovereignty ordained it to be. And he's working through the church, but the promises made uniquely to Israel will ultimately be fulfilled. And so we accept the truth of God's sovereignty by faith, knowing that we'll probably never be able, this side of eternity, to fully explain it, fully understand it. Because in our temporality, we just always come back to three letters, W-H-Y, <laughs> or H-O-W, <laughs> you know, and, and we default back to when we were toddlers, why, why, how come, because God is sovereign, God's sovereignty is not something we're to fear as students of God's word. It's not something that we are to abuse. It's not something that we should see as a convenient truth. And we want God to be sovereign when it's in our favor in a way that's pleasing to us. No, he is. And so let God be God. The sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man are not to be pitted one against the other. But they dwell together in the harmony of scripture. Both are equally present. One doesn't diminish in any way the other. God's sovereign. This is how he ordained it to be. I mean, how do we know that he's sovereign? I mean, what are the very foundations of this truth, right? In the beginning, what? God. In the beginning, God created. Spoke the world into his He's creator. Is the creator not sovereign over the created? He's ruler. Paul reminds Timothy. John reminds the church. He is king of kings and lord of lords. A wonderful passage as Paul wrote to the churches in Colossae that he's the sustainer. He's before all things and by him all things consist. So that gives us this. The, the big idea, as it is sometimes called, of what Paul is referring to as he talks now to his Jewish readers, he's reminding them of, of the what that God has done for them with the purpose of confronting them with the why. What has God done in all of these blessings and all of these promises in choosing you? Why? So let's walk through the passage together. Now, again, this, is, this gets really fascinating, especially in light of present circumstances. Verses 6 through 10. It says here, it's not as though the word of God has failed. And goes, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Now, again, we read that and we're like, huh? To the Jewish ear, alarm bells are going off. This is a big deal. They were very much about their ancestral lineage. 
And Paul makes some statements as points of clarification that, like I said, to the Gentile ear may not be as striking as they were to the Jewish or to the Arab ear. Because that's what he's doing here. He's drawing lines. He's already addressed this point from the spiritual and eternal side earlier in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Remember back, way back then he said, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. All of this was driving them to faith. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. He addresses this in Galatians 2, verses 15 and 16 as well. The events of that glorious weekend outside of Jerusalem, some 30, 35 years before Paul writes this, had changed everything. And it's clearly stated that Abraham was not justified by works, but by faith in the promise. And that he has already dealt with that in Romans 4. See, they're all about the ancestral lineage. They're all about, I'm the tribe of, and so on and so forth. All the way back to Israel. As a person, not a nation. But all of that was to drive them in faith. Abraham was not justified by works, he was justified by faith. Abraham is counted righteous before circumcision is implemented. Read your Bible. It's never been about the works, it's about the faith. Now he goes into verses 11 through 13. And he says here, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. So again, back verse 7, not all the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. It's this, you know, this funnel's happening, right? Isaac was the son of promise. Genesis 16, Genesis 17, Genesis 21. How many sons had Abraham? Eight. Ishmael, oldest. Isaac, next. Then he marries Keturah and has six more. Wow. Forgot about those. God didn't. They're recorded. Lineage is there. Only Isaac, though, was the heir to the promise. Ishmael's born like 14 years in front of Isaac. Genesis 25 records the names of the, of the sons of Keturah in, in, in those first five verses. All, ultimately, all of them are fathers of the various Arab tribes. Ishmael, Genesis 25, has 12 sons. Sound familiar? They're all, names are all recorded in Genesis 25. Ishmael is the one who is associated with Mecca. They say Ishmael is the ancestor to Muhammad. Hence the issue. You have heard, if you've been watching the news, if you watch the news, you will hear 
all about the Abraham Accords that were signed a couple of years ago, a few years ago, under the previous administration. Why do they call them the Abraham Accords? Because they were between the Jewish state of Israel and the Arab tribes. They're all the same lineage. They all do go back to Abraham, yes. But only one was the son of promise. There's 20-some Arab states. Just look at a map of Africa, pretty much all the way across from the western horn all the way to the eastern side and then down the eastern side down to Somalia and then just go straight up from there geographically all the way to Syria. That's pretty much your Arab states. They all come back. So there gets to be this really fine point to it as Paul moves along and he reminds them of the promise to Isaac. See, so he's already said, not all the sons of Abraham, but he keeps going. It's like, wow, we just really, really get it here. And he says, therefore, verse 9, he says, for this is what the promise is. At this time, Sarah will have a son. That's Isaac. Not only so, but also Rebecca. Now we're another generation. When she had conceived by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, had done nothing good or bad in order that God's promise of election might continue. And now God's breaking even more rules, as, again, the human mind would say it, but he's sovereign, so he can't really. And he addresses this issue between the twins. And who are the twins? Jacob and Esau. It makes no sense that we always say it that way. It should be Esau and Jacob. But we never say that. We always say Jacob and Esau. Why? Because God made a choice, a sovereign choice. Jacob was the younger of the two. But God said, before they were even born. So it wasn't about, he's a really good one, that one. They're not even born, he's, and he's already said, the older is going to serve the younger. He's already made the choice. And so we say Jacob and Esau. We see that in Genesis 25. God, God tells Rebekah, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from in you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. The fact that God makes this promise of choosing Jacob before their, birth, before their birth emphasizes, number one, salvation is not by works. That's what he talks about in verse 11. And it's not by custom. Because the older will serve the younger. It's not by works. And that's what he is saying there very clearly in verse 11. They'd done nothing good or bad. He repeats this theme in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. But it's also not by custom. This isn't how man would do it. But it's how God did it. Why? Because he's sovereign. Because he's sovereign. Now, Esau never directly, as this would flesh it out, serves Jacob. But his descendants do. Again, you know, we're like, right now, 
you know, yeah, there was the whole bargain about, you know, the porridge and all that kind of stuff. But, but Esau was always more powerful. Jacob, not so much physically and, and so on. But ultimately, the Edomites, who are the descendants of Esau, this is what's going on. <laughs> 1 Samuel 14, Saul has a great victory over the Edomites. 2 Samuel 8, David puts garrisons in Edom. 1 Kings 22, Jehoshaphat reigns over Edom. Amaziah has a great victory over Edom in 2 Kings. And he says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is Paul quoting directly from Malachi chapter 1. And God's great love for the children of Israel, because remember, Jacob's name is changed in Genesis 32 is once again affirmed, and it should not have been so. So Jacob, here's the younger. Jacob is the conniver. God shouldn't love any sinner, but he does. It shouldn't have been this way. Why Isaac out of all of them? Why the younger Jacob over the older Esau? Why you? Why me? God shouldn't love any sinner, but he does. For God so loved, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. It's not about works. It's not about lineage. It's about belief in the Son of God. Verses 14 through 18 Holy Spirit kind of steps in and goes, Saul, I know what they're going to say. Or Paul, I know what they're going to say. Let's just go ahead and address it. <laughs> He's going to just cut them off. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> Here comes the protest. What do you mean, Isaac over Ishmael and the others? What do you mean, Jacob over Esau? And he, this doesn't seem right, you say. This doesn't make sense, you say. This doesn't fair, you say. And this is the argument that Paul hits head on in verses 14 through 18. And every time the answer comes back, what? Say it. God is sovereign. This is how God intended it to be. It's not for the sake of being random or cruel, but to draw sinners to himself. When the reality of our great sin and the demonstration of his great love is seen, why would you not be thankful and humble and receptive to such a God? He then brings in the example of Pharaoh. Paul recognizes the reaction that's inevitable. Is there injustice then on God's part? And that powerful ply, reply comes back yet again, for like the third or fourth time. By no means. God forbid. Don't say it. 
Because God's mercy is not predicated on desire or effort. It is, that's what he says in verse 16. It's not about human will or exertion. Pharaoh had hardened his heart against God's revealed will. Moses had walked in and said, let my people go. Pharaoh had hardened his heart against God's revealed will, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart in divine judgment. Exodus 33 tells us the full story. Pharaoh had only come to power by God's plan and for God's purpose. That's what it says in verse 17. That's reminded in Exodus 9. And then we get to verses 19 through verses 29. And what's this all about? What, why, what's the purpose of all of this? Simply put, God's glory and God's love. Why do it this way? Because it will display God's glory and God's love without question. The tension builds through the verses. Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, knows there's going to be a strong response to what he's written. Verse 19 confronts us all as the words are taken right from us. And essentially the response is, well, then what's the use? Nested in the midst of these final verses before us here this morning is the ultimate answer to display his great glory and his great love. That's what he says in verses 23, 4, and 5. To make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved... I, God, will call beloved. You see, Paul, in addressing the Jews within the early church, he quotes, if you walk through this passage, he has quoted Genesis and Exodus, which of course is Moses, high regard. He quotes Isaiah, he quotes Jeremiah, he quotes Hosea, he quotes Malachi. He's leaving no stone unturned. Literally, he goes from one end of the Old Testament to the other in this argument. And in doing so, they're confronted with this truth. We are confronted with this truth. God is sovereign. Everything that he has done, every promise that he has made, it's all been to bring them to the point of salvation by belief in Jesus as Messiah. Jesus fulfilled these promises and these blessings. God told Abraham, through you I will bless the world, all the nations. Here we are. God's choosing to bless a people whom he knew would repeatedly reject him as a testimony to his glory. He would have been totally just, totally right to destroy mankind because of sin. But he made a promise and he made a way. A way through Jesus. A way by Jesus. Paul finishes the argument over the remainder of the chapter he shows how the unbelief evidenced by Israel is consistent with, with what the prophets had written. We knew it was going to be like this. 
So it's in perfect harmony with God's plan of redemption that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. That's the only way. It's not about your ancestry. It's not about anything you did do or could do. Salvation is by grace alone, through Christ alone, faith alone. That's it. And in conclusion, we find ourselves once again back to the foundational theme. The theme that Paul declared and is now explaining fully to his Jewish readers. The gospel, the gospel alone, I would add, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the just, the righteous, shall live by faith. So we should not be ashamed to proclaim it. We see the sovereignty of God demonstrated through the ages. And we are invited to behold our God. He is seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our king. Nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. He is sovereign. He is worthy. Father, thank you for your word for the clarity of it, the power of it, because of its truth. Oh, Father, use this truth in our hearts. Convict us. Confirm it in us. Father, help us to realize that you have left us here not just to revel in it and to rejoice about it, but also to proclaim it for those who need to hear. This is how you have ordained it to be. And Father, thank you that at some point in time, someone told me, someone told us and so Father, help us, help us to believe. Help us when our faith is weak. But help us, Father, to look at this and to see your great glory and your great love. We pray these things in Jesus' name.